we've completed our kind of selective study walking through the Gospels, looking at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, which we did in the fall and then the beginning of this year. And for the last two weeks, we've sort of taken a step back and looked at a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul sort of giving us an after-the-fact kind of thing. He's had decades by this point to reflect on what the significance of the life, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus means for our lives. What does the gospel look like now, 30 years later, 40 years later? And we're going to do basically the same thing this morning. David closed last week by reiterating this point that Paul makes at the end, at, uh, in the end of the text, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, the work of Jesus Christ made me work. In fact, it made me work harder than everybody else. And that's something we don't often think about, right? We think of the work of Jesus sort of making us rest from having to work. We no longer have to work. And there's a sense in which that's absolutely true and one of the best messages you could ever hear. But there was also something deeply inspiring about the gospel for Paul that motivated him towards a certain kind of life. We're going to see that exact same thing happen this morning in Romans chapter 6. So if you'll let me read Romans 6, 1 through 14, and then we'll dive in. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious message, and I pray that you would be present this morning. Will you guard me from saying anything Uh, erroneous or unhelpful, and will you awaken all of our hearts to the work of your Spirit through your Word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the Gospel is, of course, the best news in the entire world, and its message is so glorious and unpredictable and unforgettable and amazing that it is open to deep misunderstanding. When we, uh, when we were going through our, our uh, series in the Gospel of Luke, we saw over and over and over again Jesus saying something, His disciples hearing it, and completely jacking the whole situation up. 
where it just seems like, wow, they didn't, they're, they're not understanding him at all. You remember we talked about it in Luke 9. The disciples believed that Jesus, because of his greatness, must be annoyed by the presence of children. And, of course, the exact opposite is true. We talked about it in John as well. In John 4, we learned about the Samaritan woman and Jesus' presence with her at the well. And the disciples were shocked. They were appalled that Jesus would tarry with her and spend time with her. And they were especially shocked because his message for her was a message of universal uh, acceptance in the gospel. It was a new and ecumenical form of faith that proclaimed worship that happens in spirit and in truth, not in regions and ethnic boundaries and things like that. You see it in John 9. We talked about this one time where the people in John 9 believed that a man who was born blind was born that way because of some kind of specific sin that either he committed or his parents must have committed. Paul's letters are replete with these kinds of misunderstandings. You're always finding Paul trying to kind of help people figure something out. Either people are thinking that their obedience to God merits Jesus's or God's love, or people think people that think that ethnic boundaries still need to be maintained in our new community of the cross and of the Spirit. And Paul is constantly having to say, that's not the case. That's not what the gospel is about at all. So the gospel is open to that kind of misunderstanding, but it doesn't need to be. We learned in our call to worship this morning that God longs to reveal the truth of the gospel to His people, the people that are humble, that stand before His word in a humble and contrite way, people that tremble before His word. And that's and to those people, God wants to clear up misunderstandings. Well, our passage is another example of Um, one of these misunderstandings that Paul has to sort of deal with. And I am convinced that the misunderstanding here that Paul is dealing with is, for me, the misunderstanding about the gospel that I, um, John Pauling, struggle with the most. And it's the misunderstanding that somehow the gospel, the grace of God, can produce license in people's lives, license to sin. I've struggled with that virtually my entire Christian walk. But you can see exactly how this kind of thing can happen. At the end of Romans 5, right before Paul gets to where we started this morning, he says, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And as soon as those words leave Paul's pen... He knows what could happen. And everybody knows what this, in this room knows what could happen when you say something like that. If it's true that more sin in the world, just sinning more, brings more grace in the world, surely grace, it's like a simple syllogism, right? Surely grace is a good thing. More sin means more grace. Let's sin. Paul knew that the natural reaction to that statement might be to say, if grace increases through sin, let's just go ahead and sin more. But Paul is saying, absolutely not, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Conversion, the act of God on your behalf to forgive your sins and give you the righteousness of Christ also means a decisive break with an old way of life. But the power to break from that old way of life, of course, does not come from within the Christian at all. It comes from our union 
with God's Son, Jesus, the transformative work of Jesus' death and resurrection. So I just what we're going to do this morning, we don't have time to... Ver- this is a really dense passage. We could never kind of tackle this verse by verse. So I thought maybe we just ask three really simple questions of the text. There's obviously something very mysterious going on here when we think about us being united to, G- to Jesus, but I th- and we don't want to compromise the depth of that, but still maybe we can think about it really plainly. So let's just ask these questions. One, in what manner has the Christian died to sin? How have we died to sin? You see that all over this passage, right? And that's sort of a confusing element, right? Secondly, what does it mean to be raised to new life? Why does Paul link Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection? And then finally, how, how is God creating this union? And we'll actually flip-flop. Uh, question, we'll, we'll close with the resurrection and talk kind of the practical stuff in the middle. But first, let's ask the question, in what manner have we died to sin? When you start thinking about that, when you read something like this, your practical experience Monday through Friday makes you think, what in the world could Paul mean? Look at verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You read that, that's a rhetorical question that Paul's asking that he must think has a very obvious answer. You've died to sin. How can you live to something you've already died to? But our experience daily, every single day, where we know that we sin, confuses us when we read that, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is never going to die again. Fair enough, Paul says that. But we know that sin isn't dead in our lives once and for all. There isn't a day that goes by that doesn't include for us thoughts, words, and deeds that are disobedient to God. We still sin. And believing in the presence of sin in the life of a Christian, the ongoing presence of sin, seems to me to be really important. I mean, that's why we have a confession every single Sunday in here because we believe it's important to be able to admit that sin is still present in our lives. It seems to me that if, when we str- if we can't learn to admit that sin is this sort of constant presence in the lives of everybody, even the people in our lives that are the most apparently spirit-filled and godly, we will tend to over-simply divide the world into two different kinds of people, heroes and monsters. If you don't have an understanding of sin, there's only two people that will live in your life. And that goes this way. Oh, she is my best friend. I love her so much. There's nobody like her. She's amazing. We have all the same interests. She's so kind and generous and sweet and thoughtful until she disappoints you or betrays you. And then what is she? the worst person that you've ever known, the most narcissistic, selfish person that can't think of anyone but herself. you got heroes and you got monsters until you can apply the doctrine of sin to the way that you think about the world. And then you have wisdom. And then you can nuance the people that you're around. And then you can learn to forgive. So abandoning the idea that, that of sin, the presence of sin in the life of the Christian is surely not what Paul wants to do here. So what does he mean when he says, we know that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin? I think it's simple. It seems to me that Paul means here that our old selves, who we were before we were converted, 
before we were drawn to Christ, before we were drawn to His love and grace, before His Spirit filled us and enabled us to love and trust God has been crucified with Christ. So the self that was crucified, that, that was buried with Christ, that Paul mentions here, was the rebellious self that made idols everywhere. It's not the self that, uh, that sinned. It's the self whose life was under the dominion of sin as the prevailing influence without the influence of the Spirit and with Jesus. Look, look at what Paul says in verses 1 and 2. He mentions continuing in sin, and he mentions living in sin. So the idea for Paul is we can't go on unchanged living in the same standards of sin we lived in before our conversion. Of course it's true that we'll still continue to sin, but we won't be slaves to it in the same that we were. And I think it seems to me, y'all, that that message is like just such a completely different story from much of what uh, sort of masquerades as Christianity in American society, which is really deism, this idea that, yes, God made everyone and He wants everyone to be good, but He made you a certain way and then He sort of steps back, takes His hand off of you and waits for you to do good or do something bad. Good people go to heaven. Bad people we don't want to talk about that, but their mom should have taught them better. That kind of deism is not at all what Paul's talking about. The gospel says something different entirely. Paul here is telling a story of a God who broke into the created world, interrupts all of our lives by uniting us to his son, and calls us to a perpetual and constant rhythm of death and life. Paul's saying you're going to die a thousand deaths before you die. And you're going to be raised a thousand resurrections before you're raised to life, because to new life forever. Because life is going to include this constant rhythm of dying to an old order where self and sin control you and being brought to life in a new one where you're filled by the Spirit and you're united to the King of the whole world, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also pushes back against the other deeply entrenched American ideology that we have, which says any, uh, let's, all, let's push off any kind of long-term commitment until the future. Keep your options open. Don't get too committed. Don't get involved with something too much. And this, this what I mean by that is this. Every one of us in this room, either if you're parents or everyone's had parents, so you've either said this or heard this, at some time in your life, but it goes like this. This is what your parents said to you when you said, I, in seventh grade, I am completely sure that marine biology will be my vocation and I will be a marine mammal trainer when I grow up, so I need to take that seventh grade summer internship in Key Largo with the dolphins. And your parents said, we're not going to do that summer in Key Largo. Why don't you keep your vocational options open until you get a little bit older? Or when you said your freshman year in high school, I've completely decided I'm only applying to Brown. That's the only school I'm going to apply to. There's no reason to really talk about any other schools. I'm not going to, these schools in South Carolina, that seems lame. I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to go to Brown. Or... When you saw Lucy McCoy in seventh grade with her bright red hair 
and her striped tube socks and her blue bicycle, and you said, that's the one for me, you know. I'm, I'm marrying her. And your parents said, let's see how puberty pans out before we buy engagement rings. The gospel stands deeply against that kind. Now, that, that's wisdom in our society. Of course, with all three of those things I mentioned, that is true wisdom. But the gospel doesn't play that at all. It calls you to something that is going to be a commitment and is going to happen early, something that can't be put off. Paul is presenting us with a God, again, who unites you to his son, calls you to a life of love, devotion, loyalty, and service, and he knows we're going to fail at all those things all the time. But the thing that Paul gives you right here, which is one of my favorite messages in the entire Bible, is you realize that Paul's giving you one Jesus and not two Jesuses. The same Jesus that calls you to die to sin is the Jesus that forgave your sins. You don't get the lenient Jesus one day and the taskmaster Jesus the next day. You just get Jesus, the loving older brother. So how does all this work? Um, I think that this all happens when God adopts us into his family and renews our wills and gives us strength in our daily battle with sin. Um, Soren, the famous philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tells a good little story about this in his book, um, The Sickness Unto Death, where he tells the story of a day laborer that uh, gets a telegram or something, I don't know what it would have been like back then, but gets some kind of message that says, the emperor of all of the land wants you to come and be adopted into his family and be the heir of everything that he owns. And in Kierkegaard's story, this amazing thing happens where the laborer rejects that offer. He says, I don't want anything to do with that. Now, why does he reject that offer? The day laborer rejects the offer of the emperor because he knows that he feels like this whole idea is just going to make a fool out of him. I mean, for a day laborer to become the adopted son of an emperor would be for the laborer to have to take on an entirely new identity. That's just too much closeness for the day laborer. And he knew that for him to come, of course there's going to be all kinds of benefits and amazing things that happens by being the, son, the adopted son of the emperor, but it's also going to bring all kinds of new responsibilities. And you guys, I mean, the application is falling right off the page, isn't it? I mean, we're obviously the day laborer, and Paul realizes the fact that Union with Christ brings all sorts of benefits, but it also brings all sorts of responsibilities. And our natural reaction is to do just like the day laborer does and to say, that's too much closeness, that's too much responsibility, that's too much closeness. And it's, you know, we can't, I can't do it. But that's not fitting, and that's not at all to what we've been called. And Paul gives you the power to live that way. And we'll close with this by speaking about the reality and the power of the resurrection in the life of the Christian. If Jesus Christ hasn't been raised, there's no way we could die to sin every day and keep dying without being raised with Christ. Death to sin is the sort of negative side of the equation, but Paul also speaks uh, positively about union with Christ and His resurrection. Jesus died... But God raised him from the dead. And from Paul's perspective, Jesus' resurrection has huge 
implications for the Christian life. The Christian life isn't merely a matter of stopping doing certain behaviors. It's also taking the resurrected life of Jesus around with us. So before our death to sin, we were dead in sin. And now, because we died to sin, we live to life. We live to Him who holds the keys of eternal life and now lives forevermore. We walk in newness of life and we reckon ourselves alive to God. Before we were dead, zombie-like sort of serving idols and making our bellies our God. Now we are alive utilizing the faculties that God has given each one of us. Now we serve the one who's been granted all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, we labor to make disciples. Jesus has become the first fruits of a great harvest of men that will eventually all rise from their own graves. And so we, now we act as if those people could be anyone. And we indiscriminately offer the call of the gospel and call people to come forth out of their graves, just like Jesus did Lazarus. Um, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings in a new creation and it gives us the power to breathe new creation air into a stale and old order. It gives us the power to be, as the church, an embassy like an embassy of health, an embassy with good news to those who are cursed. The resurrection then, for all of us, inasmuch as its power is united to us, begins a manifold project of grace and love and justice and righteousness and we're its laborers. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love towards us and we thank you for the work of your Son on our behalf. And we thank you that the gospel gives us something that comforts us, that tells us that our sins are forgiven, but we thank you that it also means that we're being united to the one who died and was raised. And so we have power to live lives that honor you in this world. Will you give us your spirit this week and fill us so that we can live lives that are truly worthy of the gospel? In your name we pray. Amen.